Hey everyone, back again. Now we're on to chapter two of Edward Said's uh, Orientalism, this chapter two titled Orientalist Structures and Restructures. Now before jumping into it, if you're just jumping into this part, go check out part one first. If you aren't just jumping into this part, of course, there's my regular spiel. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or at Twitter at David Guineo or... Uh, do all things to help me out if you'd like, like, share, subscribe, help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure to do any of that. And this episode is just going to cover chapter two, just so you know. So even before jumping into it, I'm in a unique position here where I'm releasing these episodes, not on my normal routine. So what I normally do is I'll cover a text and record all the episodes at once and release the episodes weekly. Now, in this case, because my life is in shambles, not in a bad way, I'm just really busy, I've actually been able to record this later, which means I've been actually seeing the comments from the first episode, and there are some that I want to address. And firstly, of course, Turkey is not Arabic or majority Arabic country. What I did mean to say... For all of you know exactly what I mean, Turkey is very much Orientalist from the European imagination. As I'm sure we all know, the Orient Express ended in Istanbul. And so despite Turkey's place within Europe, among other countries uh, kind of similarly located, like Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, these are all countries that have, depending on who you read, fallen under this umbrella, this Oriental umbrella have been classified in that vein, even though they are not Arabic. And this is precisely my point, and it sort of guides my entire criticism of this text, where on the one hand, Edward Said is committed to undoing the construction of the idea of the Orient, while at the same time saying that there are no definitive structures or no definitive characteristics that actually lend credence to such a belief in the Orient. So in other words, he's saying that there is a signifier, the Orient, that doesn't actually point to anything. It has no existence in itself, which I think most of us can certainly agree with, but that is not what he's doing. He's not pointing to a real Orient. He's engaging with this very construction by Orientalists, but refuses to, in a kind of a suspicious way, to actually delineate what these characteristics are that he is going after. So he does at some points give us these very unspecific qualifications about the Orient, like saying how it is Arabic. But at the same time, like I've said, other Eastern European countries, Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, and other ones in those areas that have fallen under the rubric of Oriental are not Arabic countries. So this is the very issue I have with Said's text, which addresses some of the other concerns people have raised, or the, uh, uh, to summarize, the question being, how can you claim, or how can you demand of Said to do exactly what he's criticizing? That is to provide an idea or an identity for the Orient, when that is not what I'm asking him to do. I'm asking him to actually delineate and to establish the very thing that he's going after, Orientalism and how it constructs the Orient, which he does not at all actually lay out. 
instead he looks at Orientalism as this in itself a very nebulous, undefined category that rests upon all of these very specific codes, specific ideas that he doesn't really elaborate on. And this dovetails with other concerns I have about this text when reading it. And if any of you have read it, you'd surely know this. Uh, and the example I'd like to give is that at the end of chapter one, he says, oh, and in chapter two, we're going to discuss, begin to discuss this secular turn within Orientalism in the 20th century. But then in chapter two, he does not do that in any way, shape or form. In fact, all he does is just recapitulate the same thing he said in chapter one. Again, leading me to think that this text was for some reason just not written or planned out in advance. And I'm hard on Saeed because I like what he's doing. I like the effort he's putting into this project because it's an important one. But it is also one that falls into serious confusion when we begin to consider other Orientalist strains of thought that completely unsettle, or what we'd call Orientalist strains of thought, that unsettle any possibility of writing about it at all. Even in trying to undo these Orientalist traditions, just because Orientalism is in itself such a varied field, it seems strange to just reduce it to a single homogenous group, and it does a disservice to actually undoing the many ways in which this tradition constructs the Orient in many different ways, and imparts a certain violence or inflicts a certain violence against different countries, the way that Egypt is going to be treated differently than Turkey or than Romania or than Iraq or Pakistan, India. And by doing that, by failing to get at the nuance of these various Orientalist projects, what ends up happening in my mind is a recapitulation, a repetition of the same kind of violence that Edward Said sought to undo. So at the beginning of chapter two, just to jump right into it, Said identifies that in the 18th century, we saw the emergence of a new elements of Orientalism that in his words hinted at the coming evangelical phase of Orientalism, what he calls modern Orientalism. And some of these defining characteristics here include the following, and there are four of them. The first one was that the Orient and the logics used to map it was expanding beyond the Islamic lands. And this happened as a result of a continuing colonization into India, into other parts of uh, more Eastern Asia. Now, number two, historians, not just travelers, could speak of exotic places with a new kind of certainty. So it wasn't just people who'd been there who could speak and write about the Orient. Number three, and this list is just to refresh your memory, referring to the turn toward modern Orientalism, where he says that number three, where parts of the Orient were implicitly associated by historians and other academics with the West. So the Orient could be rationalized and adapted to the West. Uh, for example, he one of the examples he provides is Mozart's The Magic Flute, in which certain images, Orientalist images, as he would classify them, are used within a European setting with, by Mozart for the sake of art, for the sake of music. Number four, in this turn to modern Orientalism, we saw an emerging taxonomic discourse that categorized people, bodies, animals, cultures, etc. Uh, 
and this this these themes began to emerge or these practices began to emerge so modern orientalism is then a secular development as he hinted at at the end of chapter one that he would discuss this so he clarifies however that the religious imperatives of previous eras didn't disappear instead they were reconstituted redeployed redistributed in the secular frameworks and Michel Foucault's influence can't be understated here uh, and he, he's very clear about this where throughout Foucault's work even though Foucault identifies broad social and historical transformations Foucault is always quick to identify the kind of guiding thread between various transformations to show that how medical practice in the 18th century instead of developing a new kind of modern style at the time, just to use this similar term of like modern Orientalism, actually borrowed from texts and ideas from way before and just transformed them to adapt, not so much in substance, but in style to a new kind of medical apparatus, an emerging medical care system. So this turn to a kind of secular Orientalism, to modern Orientalism, then was no longer just about proffering up Europe and Christianity, but was actually, or additionally, tied to, in his words, the systematic accumulation of human beings and territories. So really, simply, there were new economic interests that wanted to expand into these lands in order to exploit them. And there was no direct Christian or European uh, a desire to impart European ideas and culture on these people. That always remained. But there was also the introduction of the desire for profit to accumulate capital. Now here he dives into some of the specific figures, the people, some specific people who belong to this modern Orientalism. And he'll start with them, and then we're going to jump all over the place to many different figures uh, that belong to both modern Orientalism and to a pre-kind uh, of more maybe religious European cultured uh, Orientalism. But in any case, for now, we're dealing with rational anthropology and philological laboratory, looking specifically at the figures of uh, Sylvestre de Sassy, and Ernest uh, Renan, Ernest Renan, I guess, yeah, uh, I hope I pronounced these right. So Sassi and Renan are two figureheads of modern Orientalism. So Sassi was largely responsible, that is, as an, he was an academic, for bridging Orientalist scholarship with public policy. So his knowledge of the Orient, whatever that is in this case, informed French and British by, by extension, but mostly French uh, foreign policy and how the French would engage with the Orient. So Sassi demonstrated an erudite, which is to say he had a all-encompassing knowledge or a, he had a lot of knowledge about the Orient. And he really garnered most of this knowledge by what he read within French libraries. So his relationship to the Orient wasn't actually fueled or didn't come from his having been there, but by what he read, likely produced by other 
Orientalists, in fact, definitely produced by other Orientalists. So what he was really successful at doing was transforming what he'd read about the Orient into a digestible form for politicians and other policymakers so that they could understand the Orient in a way that would previously be unknown to them. But we know that this Orient doesn't actually exist. The Orient that they are that Sassi is providing a face for doesn't exist. There's no single Orient. It's not a homogenous mass. Instead, what then Sassi must have been doing was just confirming the vision that France had of the Orient in such a way as to permit its uh, redeployment and re, I guess, recolonization of these lands in maybe new ways. So as France developed bureaucratically, as it maybe had more of an interest in exploiting lands or new resources, it could then turn to a figure like Sassi, who could confirm that France could in fact go back there and to, or could continue to exploit those people and their land. Now, Ernest Renan would pick up where Sassi left off, where he sought to, in Said's words, solidify the official discourse of Orientalism, that is to systematize or schematize its insights and to establish its intellectual and worldly institutions. So whereas Sassi was just trying to compile a manageable and digestible image of the Orient, Renan comes in and he says, well, we can, we can go further, further than this. We can put the Orient under the microscope. So Renan was a self-identified philologist, which Said defines as uh, the capacity to see reality in nature clearly, thus driving out supernaturalism and to continue to keep pace with discoveries in the physical sciences. That's how he def defines philology. So Renan was then in a existing kind of in a burgeoning field of empirical, kind of empirical insight, Jesus, into this part of the world that wanted to place it under a microscope to better understand it. And so this is why we get uh, kind of subtitled to this chapter or one of the subsections titled The Philological Laboratory. Now, this perspective, this philological identity that Renan, Renan, I'm just pronouncing it so many different ways, this philological identity allowed him to see a general view of human life and of the system of things. It allowed him to chart, map, plan, and understand the other, in this case the Orient, in ways that allowed its more clear and easy management to place it under better control. And part of this task was to force the other to speak, not necessarily literally. These people didn't go in and just go to Orientals, whatever, in whatever place they were in, uh, and force them to talk. They would take their texts, they would take their artifacts and study them. And it was as though by studying them that they could learn more about the people to better control them, and to manipulate them. So what Renan was also interested in was the languages spoken there, specifically Semitic languages. So we're talking here, uh, speaking Hebrew, speaking Arabic. 
which again, Romania, Bulgaria, other Eastern European countries don't really fall into these categories. But in any case, we're just talking here to be very specific about the treatment of Semitic languages. So Renan put them on display for everyone in Europe to see. And he would he would host like conferences and he would host other public events in which he would present about Semitic languages as being a debased form, being a lesser kind of language than the Indo-European languages. And so he would put them on display to highlight their deviance and their strangeness from European languages. And he approached these languages like someone like Cuvier would have approached anatomy, would have approached a human body. You know, you put a cadaver out on display to show your peers uh, or to show your students maybe how the body works. Renan put languages on display to show how they worked, but in a malicious way. He wanted to show how they were limited in their capacity to actually convey ideas or how uh, they were just um, a kind of regressed form of language. And so these languages actually inhibited and hindered these civilizations from developing from Arabic speaking people or people who spoke Hebrew actually stopped them from developing on the world stage and kept them in a kind of state of arrested development. So they were, in his words, as, as Said identifies, Semitic languages were associated with being inorganic. They were associated with being stagnant, whereas Indo-European languages were seen as being organic, being fruitful, being fecund, almost being adaptable to change and mutation. So the implication here is that people who then speak these languages, speak a language that is seen as inorganic, seen as stagnant, are then themselves going to be inorganic and stagnant. They are just behind the times, you know, they haven't fully developed, they are just uh, of a bygone era, they're backwards, whatever. So Renan treat this, treated this as a discovery of the difference between Indo-European languages and um, Semitic ones. But for Said, and Said's clever in this way, he says that it's kind of ironic that Renan needed to come in and say that these languages, these Indo-European languages are organic, and that he says this is a result of his observations in the lab, because that reveals the extent to which these languages are themselves, they don't necessarily lend that appearance to anyone. No one would look at a language and say, this is organic versus being inorganic. Just the usage of these qualifications or these descriptors toward a language is quite strange. So it is ironic that Renan's classification of European languages as organic, as alive, as generative, reveals, it essentially reveals their very resistance to these characteristics. Because even the culture Renan calls organic is also a creature being created in the laboratory by the philologist. So he is just creating these identities for European culture. And it's made really easy if you can have a constitutive other that is imbued with all of the opposite characteristics. So when we can, we can really think about Jacques Derrida's here and, and Derrida here, and how he imagines deconstruction or how deconstruction works in that if you're dealing with a binary, in this case, we have the West 
that is associated with being organic, with being active, versus the east that is associated with being inorganic and in inorganic and inactive, what we come to find here is that the qualities that are assumed of the superior term, in this case the West, are actually to be found in the other term and vice versa. So what happens is that the subordinated term, in this case the East and Semitic languages as being inorganic and dead, are actually qualities that are found in all original languages and among all languages. And that is precisely because in Said's words, he needed to create these categories or these qualities, these adjectives for these Indo-European languages. They didn't just exist there. So it's like these languages were dead when he was engaging with them. They weren't speaking their truth, so to speak. This truth was imparted upon them. And so the elements of the subordinated term are revealed to actually belong to both terms. And it takes a kind of act of wizardry to undo that and to imbue one side of the binary with certain positive qualities from some perspective versus the other side that is imbued with negative qualities. And in addition to all of this, Renan was sexist, uh, which is probably no surprise, in that he repeatedly debased women, especially women in oriental settings, and associated the other with certain feminine qualities in a negative way to associate the other with being fecund, with being uh, a debased form of just pure sensation that he would he would associate with like uh, feminine fragility and feminine um, concern with emotions. And he would associate that with the Orient. So to have conducted this research, Renan had to commit to the fantasy of objectivity by elevating the individual above society, race, and culture. And this encapsulated his liberal mindset. So to kind of unpack that point, what, what Renan was doing was saying that people in the Orient are subject to and they are subordinated by their race, their language, and their cultures. Whereas people in Europe have somehow shed their chains to race, to culture, to language, and exist as purely autonomous individuals that choose their own destiny and their own way of being in the world. So part of the operation at play here is not only to create a constitutive other against which to proffer up the qualities of the insider identity, in this case the West, uh, with Indo-European languages and so on. It is also meant to render transparent, to render invisible, those very qualities that are associated with the West. So what Renan is doing by saying that the people in, the, in Europe are not subject to their race, their culture, their language, what he is doing is erasing the fact that that's, of course that's the case. Of course people are going to be subject to their race, their culture, and their language. But he's trying to erase that in order to make the other, according to its race, its culture, and its language, according to their race, their culture, and their language, uh, funny how we repeat the same kind of, uh, the same kind of harmful rhetoric. Uh, so I won't delete that. But anyways, so referring to the other is it. Very nice, David. 
how their race, their culture, and their language becomes hyper-visible, which makes it all the more easy to identify them and to put them on display to make them, to make them an example of what is unsavory or what is not, uh, what are the unappreciated qualities of, of a human. Now here he considers again uh, the treatment of Muhammad by certain Orientalist figures, including uh, Carlyle and uh, Kossin. And he speaks about many others, and I can't go into detail about every single one because that would take forever. But here he considers the treatment of Muhammad not as an actual religious figure within the Muslim world, but instead as a religious tool used for political purposes or a political tool used uh, kind of, that's kind of um, used as a, as a religious icon, as a big red herring to throw people off when really the point of Muhammad was to rally people behind the Islamic cause against Europe. So all of this is really just a European moral panic about Islam, Islam's growing strength and the growing strength of the Orient, whatever the Orient is here, like according to Carlisle and Kostin, I mean, we don't, we don't really know, but in any case, uh, I guess here it's just the Arabic world, but anyways, which is that synonymous with uh, Islam? I mean, I'll leave that for you to decide. Actually, no, I won't, because it isn't. But in any case, just so you know the complexity of this, uh, the subject matter here. So these were efforts to tacitly defang and declaw anything that was seen as being threatening about the Orient. So they would say, Orientalists would say that Muhammad doesn't actually have religious significance, it's just a political tool in order to remove the possibility of Christian, uh, Christian in inferiority to Islam. Because if you have a competing religion almost right next door that has uh, exist, that is existing on holy biblical lands, that's going to pose a problem. So one way to undo that is to delegitimize that religious force, to say that that legitimate, that Jesus, that religious force, Jesus, choice of words, that religious force is predicated upon a fraud, the fraud of um, Muhammad as just being a political figure, which obviously none of that is true, but this is how it was people in Europe sought to defang the Orient at least the, per the perceived threat of the Orient. Now, while there were these strands of Orientalist thought that, although tacitly were direct in their desire to uh, stifle the Orient because they were scared of it, some other approaches thought that the Orient was self-destructive. And by virtue of it being self-destructive, demanded that people in Europe and the West intervene in those spaces in order to protect the people, to distribute democracy, to distribute European values onto those people. And probably the biggest figure here who does this is Karl Marx, who very, very problematically viewed English colonialism in India as a necessary evil in order to liberate the people of India from their patriarchal uh, cultural roots in order to embrace capitalist European society. And you might say, capitalism? Marx didn't like capitalism, which isn't true. But 
he thought that that was a necessary step in order to arrive at the next thing, communism, to move beyond the shackles of tradition into the new. So in case you think that I am misquoting Marx or misrepresenting him, here's a quote where he says that England has to fulfill a double mission in India. One destructive, the other regenerating. The annihilation of the Asiatic society and the laying of the material foundations of Western society in Asia. Now, this isn't just Marx, like, and this isn't just from a few hundred years ago, or a couple hundred, 150 years ago. People like Slavoj Zizek still believe this stuff, or at least in his text, First as Farce, Then as Tragedy, which you can go and read, and he advocates for these similar ideas, which is just very strange. Uh, and while it's problematic to say that to kind of lend an olive branch to people in the past for having problematic views, it's just so strange that someone in the 21st century would think similarly. But if you were ever really curious about the concerns I would have with Marx and Marxism, they are pretty much, uh, this, this passage pretty much encapsulates all the concerns I have about Marxism, which is probably going to ruffle some feathers, but I would request you reflect before you take insult at that. Unlike Marx and the others, other Orientalists, there is also a camp of Orientalism that contributes to the field by um, kind of having lived and written about the Orient. So people who go there and keep journals and other types of records about their experiences there. And these people were exalted in some respect as having intimate knowledge of the Orient that wasn't readily accessible through texts, like in the in French libraries. But it's interesting here because the only way to really engage with these people's narratives was through the lens of Orientalism that people would acquire by having read the texts furnished to them by the French libraries or from British libraries or libraries in Europe. But we'll talk about that in a, in a moment. For now, it's important to classify, or Said classifies that there are three kinds of travelers who would go to the Orient. The first kind is the one who specifically tries to contribute to Orientalism, who says, you know, I'm interested in this Orientalist field or this, um, you know, whatever it would be called, Arabic studies field, what have you. So I want to go there in order to contribute to this field. Then there are those people who or writers who indirectly would contribute to Orientalism, who didn't necessarily go there for that reason, but their words, their texts, their, the ways they recounted the Orient would be used in order to proffer up this field, in order to keep it alive. The third kind of writer is someone for whom the trip satisfies a deeply felt and urgent project. And this would go down, in some cases, even sexual lines, which we'll talk about in a bit. Now he goes into great detail giving examples of each uh, that I don't have the time to get into, but what really remains consistent across all three of these different kind of travelers to the Orient is that they all treated the Orient as a site for a pilgrimage and as a site of spectacle, as being a kind of fantastical, romanticized, exoticized other, which in itself is problematic and in itself was likely brought about by Orientalism. 
that treats the other as an exotic, mysterious other that is in need of European observation. So like I alluded to earlier, these people were exalted insofar as their words were seen as being objective because they were physically there. So therefore, what they were saying must have been objective. They would see things about people in the Orient. They would say that people here are maybe licentious or they are liars or some some other problematic violent shit, they would say, that would confirm the Orientalist ideas about the Orient. So they could then say that these people are being objective because their words confirm with what we already believed. When that is not in itself objective, objective is to unsettle, it's largely to unsettle knowledge, not to confirm knowledge that already exists. Well, obviously not necessarily, but in this case, to have been objective would have been to problematize everything the Orientalist tradition had been saying, because the Orient doesn't exist. So these words that these travelers would write, keep track of, wouldn't just be smoothly or objectively relayed to their European counterparts. They would need to be filtered through the Orientalist language that the people would have in order to make it digestible for Orientalists. And like we talked about in the last episode, if there was an idea, a perspective about the Orient that didn't comply with the hegemonic notions of what the Orient was, it would just be discounted. Similarly here with travel accounts, if somebody went there and said that this place, let's say Egypt, was a burgeoning culture of ingenuity, of scientific knowledge, of political rigor, that person's narrative would probably be discounted. It would be seen as an aberration, as, as not actually complying with the objective idea about the Orient. So there's a very firm tension here. On the one hand, Europe wants its vision of the Orient as being a depraved place of violence and greed and, and sexuality just running rampant, wants this to be confirmed, wants all of its ideas about the Orient to be confirmed. But it also wants those ideas to be relayed to it in a way that complies with a highly academic, scientific, sanitized discourse. It needs to comply with these various structures in order to be readily digestible by the Orientalist figures. Now, Saeed just kind of mentions this point, uh, and it's one of many ideas that he'll present and not unpack. But this is an interesting one because it rests upon the assumption that Europeans were prudes, essentially, which is ironic given his self-proclaimed status as a Foucauldian, because that is exactly what Foucault tries to disprove in the history of sexuality, is that all of the rhetoric, rhetoric around sexuality was not because there was a fear of sex, a desire to, I guess in some sense, a desire to control it, but there was an obsession with it. These people were not, uh, the people in the West, the people in the Occident, were not scared of sex, as Saeed seems to intimate here. They were very much fascinated by it and willing to participate in it. So what this might mean is that Foucault's thesis is wrong, or Saeed's thesis is wrong. And this comes to, this will problematize what we will know uh, going forward when we talk about sexuality in just, in just a moment. Now, 
in the treatment of the Orient, at least between the French and the English, there are some pretty big differences. The English largely experienced the Near Orient, the Arabic world or, you know, whatever Said is calling the Orient, according to whom, it's not entirely sure. But the Orient here is treated as a middle ground between <laughs> between Europe and the Orient, which like India and Pakistan and other places that fall under the canon of the or within the canon of the Orient, but aren't the near Orient. So their relationship to it was largely political and economic, where they would pass through the Middle East in order to arrive in Pakistan and in India that they were exploiting as part of their colonies. Whereas the French, their relationship to it was different in that they engage with the Orient in itself, not as a passageway to their Orient or to the lands that they had to mystify and they had to control and understand. So for example, uh, a figure like Chateaubriand saw the Orient and its landscape as a way to get closer to God. So in a way, it was also a passageway. Now, Said doesn't say that, that this is my idea. But he kind of looks at, or Saïd looks at Chateaubriand in order to point out that Chateaubriand characterized the Orient as being a place that was closest with nature. And because it was closer to nature, and this is all racist stuff, just associating brown people with being closer to nature as being uh, further back on the evolutionary chain, closer to animals, like this is all problematic stuff that's been recited again and again by, by racists all throughout history. But the idea here is that because these people were supposedly less evolved, they were closer to God. So Chateaubriand took this as his own passageway to get closer to God. So that developed within him a fascination, a real interest in these people and their cultures as being closer to God, not in any respectful way, but as something that he could exploit. Now, this isn't something that Said goes into great detail about, but it was like in this case, Chateaubriand and the French were treating the, the Orient as their own passageway, not to India for economic or political gain, but to God for the gain of salvation, of divine salvation or what have you. And the British didn't have this kind of relationship to the Orient. They didn't necessarily attach it to God. Like theirs was less maybe was more secular. That is, it didn't have as much of a relationship with the religious imperative here. So a figure like Lane saw the Orient as, you know, just being this passageway, not as being uh, an avenue toward the divine to get closer to God. The Orient was just in need of classification to make its control easier in order to make arriving at their real interest easier. Or if it offered economic gain, they could then take control of that, like the Suez Canal or what have you. Now, as for the sexual obsession with the Orient, figures like Flaubert saw the Orient as, um, who is another Orientalist figure, saw that the Orient embodies a, a, a real sexual perversity that Europe found to be very interesting. Now, of course, this isn't true, but they believe this to be true. And they believed that Europe was a place, a, a prudish place where people didn't really engage in sexual um, 
in sexual activities beyond just monogamy or heterosexual monogamy. And they saw an opportunity to expand their horizons in the Orient. So people would treat it, in Saeed's words, as a place where one could look for sexual experience unobtainable in Europe. So people who were deemed to be within, within Europe, who were deemed to be unsavory people like vagrants and delinquents and criminals, would flock to the Orient. And again, this flies in the face of Foucault's central thesis in the history of sexuality, where it wasn't just deviance according to the European, uh, sen- to, according to European sensibilities that were interested in sexuality, but academics, uh, you know, regular everyday people were obsessed with sex. They, to such an extent that they put like stockings on the legs of pianos because they, out of fear, they'd be too aroused by the piano legs. And if Europeans couldn't actually go there to the Orient to have their their fantasies satisfied, they could then read about it instead in Orientalist texts. So the Orient would attract learned Orientalists and the more free-spirited Europeans alike, like these deviant figures, where apparently the Orientalists were there objectively studying it, not actually engaging in these activities, whereas vagrants and vagabonds and delinquents were just participating in all of the freedoms that would be allowed there. Uh, where they went, uh, Saeed doesn't specify, but they just went to the Orient, wherever that was. So he concludes the chapter by pointing us to the next, to the third chapter, to say that he's going to be interested here in the 20th century, which he said in the last chapter, at the end of the, at the, end of the first chapter. But now we're going to get into Orientalism in the 20th century, which will point us into the third chapter, titled Orientalism Now, and how the West formalized and crafted the Orient so that it existed into or fell into a repeatedly produced copy of itself, where the Orient would just continually abide by and comply with the vision that Europe made of it. And the West, you know, including uh, America and Canada and so on. And yeah, that'll put us into the next chapter here. Uh, like I said, I think it's important to be critical of Saeed and to really take him to task so that we can do his project better. Um, I'm never satisfied with saying that anyone is above criticism. So yeah, if you like what I did, you know how to like, share, subscribe. If you don't like what I did, then leave more comments. I love reading them. Uh, and if I happen to record the next episode late, maybe I'll be able to respond to some of them in the episode itself. But yeah. If you like what I did, like I said, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Who knows? They might get a kick out of it. And uh, yeah, catch you next time. Take care.